Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. What happens when an acclaimed author who's written about figures from George Washington and James Madison to Aaron Burr and Andrew Johnson turns his historical searchlight inward to his own family's American story? David O. Stewart does just that in his novel, The New Land. It's book one of the Overstreet Saga. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio, and a special tip of the hat to everybody watching today's time travel adventure on our YouTube or Rumble channels. Remember, you can check me out on social media at historyauthor.com, or you can read my columns in the Washington Times to get my analysis of history in light of what I've learned from all these books behind me. And David O. Stewart, by the way, was kind enough to give me a quote for one of those. I love to keep in touch with authors and I love to get their insights on what's happening today beyond what a lot of columnists do, which is they just go to Wikipedia and maybe the thing isn't even sourced. It's nothing special. It's nothing deep and meaningful that can help us better understand our world today. David O. Stewart is a man of very broad experience. This is his fifth appearance on the show, and I can guarantee you it will not be his last because I love speaking to him. He previously was here to discuss his nonfiction book, George Washington, The Political Rise of America's Founding Father. He also talked with us about Madison's Gift, Five Partnerships That Built America. That was five years ago, almost six now, when we first had him on the show. He also wrote and discussed with us the epic American Emperor, Aaron Burr's challenge to Jefferson's America. And finally, we dabbled in his fiction by welcoming him on to talk about The Lincoln Deception, a novel in his Frazier and Cook historical mysteries that has a real-life giant historical question mark. So it's not just historical fiction. It's really a fascinating look at a cryptic comment made in our world that nobody has ever been able to answer about the Lincoln assassination. This new trilogy David brings us lands us on the rocky shore of Broad Bay, Maine. The year is 1753. Once we're there, we meet John Oberstrasse. He's a Hessian mercenary, retired, and the retired part is very important to him. He's had enough of war after being hired out to the King of England to do his dirty work. Johann's wife, Christiane, resolves that their son will never march in his father's footsteps. But the new world brings new enemies, challenging the rebranded over street family and their longing for a peaceful life. Visit davidostewart.com for more on today's guest and his many books from fiction to nonfiction. You can also find him on social media and follow him there for updates and his insights He's a prolific fellow, and you'd be so glad that you have him in your feed. Well, now that we've arrived back on the main coast of colonial America, let's join David O. Stewart and explore his family's story through fiction in The New Land. And here we are with David O. Stewart. He's author of The New Land. The book is novel number one of the three-part Overstreet Saga. Welcome back to the History Author Show, David. Well, it's a treat to be here. Every time I pick up a book with your name on the cover, it's as if I'm meeting a new author that I really like for the first time because you shift things a, a tiny bit. Quality is still there. Your voice is still there, but you are a Renaissance man. You write across all different period genres here. I'm waiting for your fantasy novel next, but <laughs> the new land starts with a moment that while most of us couldn't write as broadly as you do, starts with a moment I think we can all relate to in your personal life, and that's this artifact and a family story that turns out to be a fictional family story. It's a piece of jewelry, and when we were young, we all remember we were fascinated by little artifacts, a little piece of jewelry, something our, our mother had or our father had tucked away in a drawer, and it was just magical to us. So how did that family heirloom for you or that family artifact Plant the seed of the story that becomes not just the new land, but becomes a three-book series based on your family's life. Yeah, um, my mother had a ring she wore always. Uh, 
and I liked it maybe because she wore it, but <laughs> I just liked it. And as a, it was an amethyst ring uh, and sort of a pale lavender. Um, and I was pretty young, uh, I think about seven maybe. And I asked her, uh, where did it come from? Uh, and I was a kid who loved history even as a young boy. And you know, the family joke ever since has been that I, I read the encyclopedia for fun um, and I did. Uh, <laughs> so a nerd from the start. And, uh, Didn't everybody do that? I don't want to interrupt yeah, you, but, but that sounds weird to me because that was one of my favorite things. Was, we had those old ones that said, maybe someday we'll land on the moon and I still love them, but I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, it has the best stories. Um, so I asked her about it and she, you know, held it out for us to admire. And uh, she had a little sense of theater and was a storyteller. And uh, she said, well, it had been taken off the finger of an ancestor as he lay dead on a battlefield in the Civil War. And it was just pow, she had me and I was done. Uh, this was the most romantic possible story. This fellow, an ancestor who had died trying to save the Union and free the slaves. I mean, what could be more heroic? And uh, it became, you know, something that was part of me, that, that story. And as I got older and was just getting out of college, actually, uh, I had known that her family came from Maine. Uh, so I was going to Maine with my then girlfriend, now wife of many years. And we uh, uh, were going to not be not far from the town they came from on the coast of Maine. So I said, well, <clears throat> let's go see, go there and see if there we can find any overlocks, which was the, my mother's family's name and my middle name. And uh, it was really interesting. Uh, they had a lot of resources in the local library. And I was able to determine that yeah, the, the town was crawling with overlocks. It's the only place in America that is. And uh, that uh, there was an ancestor who fought in the Civil War, a uh, direct ancestor. I think it's a three greats grandfather, but he didn't die in the Civil War. And that ring certainly didn't come from him. And as I got older, I could look at it and see it was a lady's ring. It was not a man's <laughs> ring. No, no man would wear that ring. Uh, but the story was embedded. And over the years, you know, I went off and was a newspaper reporter and practiced law and did my, my life. But I would sort of chew on this issue as to, you know, her ancestors, because I have many ancestors who are late immigrants to this country, uh, other lines of my family, but these overlocks had been here from the, from the start or, is close, or close to the start. So I was able to figure out a fair amount about them and was always interested because they, their story could parallel the story of the country. And I just thought I would write this story because the fellow who served in the Union Army actually had a very consequential war. He was involved very much in, uh, with the Army of the Potomac in its terrible battles. So I just kept chewing at it and hoping I would find enough to write sort of a history, but I didn't. They were not central important figures in the world. They didn't leave journals and diaries. So I finally decided, well, you know, I'll just make some stuff up. <laughs> and fill in the gaps, there were a lot of gaps, um, with, with, uh, by making them a fictional characters. So that's, that's how, it, how it happened. It jumped out at me that you say you go back to that ring over the years as you're growing up and becoming an adult and going through the phases of your life and you're, you're learning new things. So the way that you see the ring, the ring's not changing, but you're changing and how you perceive it is changing. And that's a great thing about history and a great thing about reading a book like this much less writing one. So I've heard you say before that you feel like you've been writing this book most of your life. And I wondered how it would be different if you had written it 
back then, say when you were you were in high school, you try your hand at it or college, or if this was your first book instead of the latest book in a, many books that you've written and you set pen to paper now, how do you think that how you see this, maybe what's available online through places like Ancestry.com is different and how you're able to bring readers a richer experience here in the Overstreet Saga and in the new land to start with than maybe if it had been a book you wrote when you were younger and you didn't have the same broad experience that you have now. I think that the biggest change is, sim is simply uh, because I'd written so many books of history, I knew I was better at ferreting out history. The family history sources are finite and, and not deep, uh, certainly not for this era, the 18th century. Um, but I did understand and do understand what life is like, was like in the 18th century. You know, when you write uh, historical fiction, it's almost like science fiction when you describe, refer to fantasy novels. I mean, I'll never do that, but, um, it's world building. You know, the past is a foreign country is a sort of catchphrase um, that is popular because it's accurate. And so you have to build what that world was like. And because I had worked so much in doing books on James Madison and Aaron Burr and uh, George Washington, I did have a sense of what their lives were like um, how they differ from us. And, you know, obviously human beings don't change a whole lot inside, but the external uh, realities change a lot over time. And that has some impact on how we structure our lives. So I, I think there was a, a richness that came out of, that I could bring to it that, you know, if, when I was 25, uh, I wouldn't have had. And you can relate to a lot of these things, I'm sure, that we see because you've lived a life. Now you've been a husband. That would be very hard to write about, as I'm sure you know, no matter how much you try to explain to somebody who isn't married or your wife tries to explain to a wife what it's like. They they don't really, people don't really get it. It's one of those things you have to be in a marriage to understand, really. And even then, I don't think I understand too much, but it's it's one of those things. You, you have to live it and you have to see it and read and look at how other people live that life. You pick up the character of the reluctant soldier here. That's your, your main character. And that is something that is, like George Washington, a ideal. It's an American ideal that we have, that you know, the soldier lays down his arms. It goes, it goes way back. It goes right back to Cincinnati. So not just America, but it's one of those things we base our republic on, so it's dear to us. And it's something that's just so great for fiction because we can all relate to that thing I don't want to go back and do, even if we weren't soldiers. So I wanted to ask, what historical figures did you draw upon when you have this Hessian mercenary? You have a lot of blanks to fill in, as you said, into the real history. There's a struggle here for him to keep his family happy, to keep his wife happy, and to avoid this life. He doesn't want to have war anymore. He just wants to beat his sword into a plowshare and be up there. And that doesn't really quite work out for him. He has many obstacles in this new land. So how do you how do you go back and say, well, this is a guy maybe I based it on, or is it just your experience? And it just comes flowing out of you as prose when you want to make things like that relationship with his son, Franklin, and keep him from having to go through the horrors that he did. War of Independence is coming. You, you need to make all of that ring true for this man. How did you do it? What were your influences in real life? One of the few things I knew about the original immigrant was he was a soldier of the high troops. And uh, in Germany, that was an honorable calling uh, for poor people. But he came over here when he was not an old man, um, but not a young man. And I figured he had to be leaving something that he wanted to leave. And being a soldier would be a hard thing when you're a mercenary. And that's what the Hessians were. Um, they were hired out by the head of Hesse. It was called the Landgraf. And that, it seemed to me, would create a, an inner conflict, which is uh, always powerful. Um, he has these skills. It's his trade. But he 
doesn't want to do it anymore. And that is an internal conflict that it can be powerful. And he has a sense of duty. Uh, soldiers do. So when he is called upon to be a soldier again, and he is, uh, he answers the call the first time. And the second time, he doesn't. And, you know, you're, you're right. This is a trope we've lived with a lot. I mean, I, I, I can't count the number of times I've watched the movie High Noon with Gary Cooper. And all he wants to do is get out of that job and go off with Grace Kelly. And who wouldn't? Um, <laughs> but, you know, he had his duty and he answered his duty. And I think that was an important thing to uh, call up but also to give equal weight to the, the need for peace and the need not to be a soldier. And I think, you know, in my own life, I, I was a, a white collar soldier. I went off and fought battles in courtrooms for my clients for years, and then I didn't want to. <laughs> and, uh, and I knew I had to get out of the business because <clears throat> if you don't want to do it, you're not going to do it very well. And so, so I had a sense of, of how that would feel. And um, uh, it, that structure uh, talked to me. Just being paid for something you have a job to do and not wanting to do it is bad enough. But when you're having to go fight and maybe die, not only kill, but also die, it makes it so compelling here for this man. Uh, jo Johann Oberstrasse, I didn't say the name out loud because I was reading the book, not, not listening to it, but that's the name that becomes Overstreet here and gives its name to the Overstreet saga. That's this ancestor is based on that gives you the O in your name. And you mentioned about not having the benefit of diaries and things and drawing on all of these feelings. So I wanted to ask you to read a brief passage. I like to do that with novelists because just like there's 20 ways to enter the room, uh, they'll tell you at an actor's studio, there's many ways you can start a book, there's many things you can focus on, many ways you can do the dialogue. So would you give us a little flavor there, set this up for us so readers can have a taste of the new land? Yeah, thanks. Um, it is uh, a moment in the book uh, when he and his wife, Christiane, who's a very important character, uh, have a new baby. And the baby is what we would call now colicky. Um, and there is nothing as hard as a baby who cannot be comforted uh, and uh, drives you nuts. Uh, as a grandparent, I've recently been going through a little bit of that. And it, it was a real um, sort of deja vu experience all over again. And so they are forced at this point in the book to uh, live in a compound with, in a communal setting, because if they live out on the farms, the Indian raiders will pick them off. Uh, so they are thrown back into this communal setting. They hate it. Everybody hates it. Um, you're just on top of people and uh, there's no privacy and it's, it's, it's grim uh, setting. So Johan, Here's the baby in the middle of the night. Uh, Christiana's exhausted. So he, he takes the baby and walks down to the river uh, and uh, has the baby with him. So let me just read a few paragraphs. Johan felt jittery. His muscles strung taut, a terrible weariness and anger in his soul. It had been building for days, weeks, now months. He had to fight the reasoning that formed in his mind, reasoning that seemed so seductive so obvious. The baby is miserable. The baby is making everyone else miserable. The noise never ends. It crawls under your skin and into your brain and never lets you alone. Noise that no human should have to endure. Everything else has been tried. So only one course is left. There's only one way to stop the noise. He shook his head. This was madness. Franklin, that's the baby's name carried on for another minute then broke off he choked for a second johan looked down and saw him fight for breath franklin widened his eyes and belched he took a breath closed his eyes and screamed again johan sat on the ground with his back against a tree he faced the river holding his son before him leaning the small body back against his drawn-up knees franklin's scream suddenly sounded sad the boy was inconsolable somehow he knew the horrors of this world he had been dropped into, 
the bloody death and disease, the viciousness and fear and loneliness. Johann felt himself open up inside. A tear came to his eye. He smiled at Franklin and brushed his knuckles against the baby's cheek. Ah, poor baby, he thought. Poor, poor baby. Tell me about it, he whispered. It will be less terrible if you tell me. Franklin broke off in mid-cry to take a double breath, one with a hiccup in the middle of it. He opened his eyes and looked at Johann, then shifted his head. Johann nodded to him. Hello, Master Franklin, he said. He felt this tiny being enter his heart. Franklin peered into the dimness to one side. His spine of iron relaxed. He yawned. Soon he was asleep. As you're reading that, you go through all of the emotions that you would have. You understand, and this is a former soldier. This is not his job. This is not his skill set, as I guess we'd say today, right? And he has a job to do. Another mirror here to the larger plot. There's so many things they had to do. There was nobody to hire to do it. There was no one else that was going to do it in those days where you you just had to get on with your business. And he seems to be, as you get into the book, somebody who there are some there's just again and again things knocking on his door literally eventually i don't want to give away any plot point but people are always and problems are always coming and knocking on his door and there's one right there and one that he's supposed to really be taking care of and he has that that moment of doubt and shame where he's not sure about what he should do i just have to get this noise to stop it's it's really a powerful scene and something as you said i guess you experienced it so that's a positive for you you were able to write down some of those notes while while your grandchild is screaming in your arms, I guess. Uh, yeah, it it is one of the, I mean, if you've been through it, it's just one of those totally powerless moments. Um, and, you know, it, you you are convinced nothing works, nothing will help. And uh, that that's hard. You mentioned Christiane Overstreet, Johan's wife, and how important she is. And she's a strong figure and I, this is i hesitate because that's something that's become such a cliche in the, in the last several years but she reminded me of a line that's in my big fat greek wedding and not my personal big fat greek nuptials <laughs> but the actual film and the the daughter is inconsolable speaking of inconsolable children and she's saying oh I can't. My father will never let me marry Xano. and this is something every greek family has heard and probably everybody from every immigrant family you want you want them to marry somebody from your group and she says well he's the head of the household I can't do anything and the mother says well let me tell you the the husband he's the head but the wife she's the neck and she could turn the head and and aim get him to look where she wants him to look and point him in the right direction and I thought of that here when we meet this character because she is impacted Another thing we see throughout history, she is the one who is at home. She's the one who will be widowed. She's the one who deals with him waking up in the middle of the night, Johan and screaming and all these things that he's done. And I'm sure snapping at her and all of these things. And so I wondered, how do you balance her role? How did you flesh her out? Because we live at a time where people don't want to see the, oh, my vapors, pearl clutching. And that wasn't accurate to begin with. Frontier life and therefore frontier women and men had to be really strong. So who did you base her on so that she would really appeal to contemporary viewers who say, hey, she's not just the lady from F Troop or she's not just one of these women that's there with the dress and she was out there working. Who did you base her on? You know, it, obviously, the one, to me anyway, obviously, the women in my life, uh, starting with my mother and uh, I had two sisters, have two sisters who are all strong people and my wife. Um, you know, every female character I write has qualities in my life. And it's always challenging and fascinating to write about women because, um, you know, uh, I'm not one. And... Uh, in, in this case, uh, uh, she is in a traditional marriage. It's the 18th century. Uh, she's not a crusader for women's rights, and that would be ridiculous to try to present. Um, there were probably seven of them in the 18th century, and you know, not a lot. Um, but your analogy is very good. 
um, in my experience, uh, and I certainly have experienced it as a wife, as a husband and as a son, um, women can be very deft at nudging your thinking. And, uh, you know, I use, uh, I do try to set it up that going to America is actually her idea. And uh, she has to present it so it feels like his idea. And, you know, she's good at it. And I think those are actually pretty important leadership skills. Um, one of my favorite quotes from history is from Thomas Jefferson who wrote his grandchildren and said, the absolute worst way to persuade someone is to argue with them. <laughs> Nobody wants their mind to be changed in an argument. Um, and I think because they are often, have often been in positions of less social power, uh, less physical power, um, women, uh, many women learn how to do it uh, more deftly and uh, indirectly. And I wanted to portray that. Uh, it, I don't see it as a sign of weakness. I see it as a sign of intelligence uh, and uh, something to be admired. And I think we would all do well if we were better at that sort of thing than having arguments. It's definitely something that makes for more compelling reading too. Who wants to read about somebody that just smashes through their obstacles? It's one of the things that makes a movie good or bad, right? The Godzilla versus Bambi, it's no competition. So it's over in about two seconds, right? Or those Tyson fights, remember how mad everybody used to be when Mike Tyson would come out and first punch, he would knock the guy out, collect his, per, his purse of cash. And people would be saying, I paid for this. I tuned in for yeah. this. What the heck? Dragged my butt all the way to Atlantic City for that. That's not what's interesting. We want flaws because we have flaws. And when we read about somebody here in the new land, we all have our own new lands to conquer, right? Whether you're starting a new job, whether you are having that first baby, whether you're getting married, whatever it is, you have new challenges that you have to get and you you can't punch your way through all of them and you can't just use your strength or your size. We all have different limitations. So I really like that about her character. It was somebody that came to life for me and reminds me of another pop culture little line that I'll throw in there and that's Peggy Hill and she's telling her niece, that as long she says as long as the as that river in Colorado was carving that canyon women have been learning to subtly influence relationships and I thought of that as you spoke that yeah. that was their power that was their balance and we all need that they're in a way the if you look at the brain of of women versus men they have many more connections for things like speech and conversation and so it's it's really a complementary marriage here and it's nice to read about because I find often when people write fiction from this period, they'll have killed the wife off because there was such high mortality rate. But I, that was probably something you didn't want to do because you wanted to stay a little faithful to history. Yeah, and, and the frontier was brutal on women. Uh, a lot of it was childbirth. I mean, that was, you know, a life and death crisis every time. Uh, but it, it also was they were just worked so hard. Um, you know, it turns out being out and hunting and fishing was actually easier than uh, keeping the household going. Uh, so uh, it, it is, you know, and my ancestor went through a couple of wives. Uh, it's just, you know, what happened? Uh, it, it was, it was hard. You're enjoying my conversation with David O. Stewart. He's here to share his new novel, The New Land, book one in the Overstreet Saga, book two called The Burning Land, Picks up the story during the Civil War and the westward expansion. That'll hit shelves later this year, later in 2022. And the saga concludes with the Resolute Land during World War II. You can visit our guest at davidostewart.com. You can find him on social media as well, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Kent Wascom, he's the author of The New Inheritors, calls The New Land a dazzling and retching novel of history that marks the beginning of an American epic, a story of immigration, the inheritance of violence, and the love of a father for his son, told in language that stings with salt and sawdust and gunpowder. David, Kent Wascom there says, the beginning of an American epic. And to me, 
no pressure on you, right? But you, you hear you're, you're required now to write an epic. You've promised people by writing an excellent first novel in the new land that there are more great stories to come. You are going to complete the Overstreet Saga. Well, you have, I believe, completed the next two books. So you know that it's finished and you're happy with where it went. But how was that challenge of writing this story, keeping people interested, not, not repeating things, making every generation sound exactly like the last and kind of phoning it in as you're writing the story. How was that challenge of writing what here we're all expecting an echo we're all expecting an epic now. So how was that challenge of writing an epic, writing this kind of trilogy, a different challenge from the books that you've written, uh, novels and nonfiction before The New Land? Well, let me first say that uh, in anybody watching uh to encourage them to notice kent wascom um he's a fine writer and uh understands historical fiction in a way that not many do so his words which you heard were well, as lyrical as he always does but also capture a good deal of what this book is about sort of doing a family story across uh centuries was tricky um exactly what you're you're poking at here and you're right to poke at it. Um, there has to be something recognizable in the characters who continue on. But times change, uh, situations change, um, people intermarry, you get other family influences. So the people are not going to be exactly the same. Um, it was kind of spooky when I saw the physical description of the fellow who's the central character in, uh, or one of the two central characters in the second book, because it was me. I mean, just physically, his, when he was drummed into the army, uh, or he volunteered, uh, he was, you know, had, well, he was my height and weight, and uh, I had brown hair at the time, and <laughs> blue eyes. And so that was a little spooky. Uh, and so there are things that will persist, you know, maybe randomly. Uh, you know, we've all seen gene pools uh, go in funny directions. So you have to have some continuity, but you can't overdo it. Um, they're not going to be the same. They're, I forget the, the book. I think it was Poland. Um, James Michener, who wrote these massive epics, which people used to read a lot of, and I think not so much anymore, um, he would do multi-generational sagas. And this one book, every male character in the family for nine, 11 generations had the same mustache and the same white streak in the left side of his mustache. And, you know, I finally just threw the book across the room. You know, it doesn't <laughs> happen that way. Um, they will, you know, they'll have some qualities um, that feel familiar. But uh, it, it, it's a different place. Uh, just as you know, the, the past is a foreign land. You, you come up another century, that's a foreign land. So you have to figure out ways to sketch that in and to imagine people interacting. Uh, the second book is a little easier at some level because I knew more about that character. Um, and uh, that gave me, I, I often view historical fiction what I find attractive about it is there are some basic guardrails that lead me along. Um, and, you know, writers have been doing this for centuries. You know, well, since Homer with the Iliad, uh, you know, you take a basic story and you kind of know where you're going and that's very reassuring. And then you dig into it and figure out really what's going on in the story. And that's the interesting part of fiction. I think that's the storytelling part that is challenging and also draws readers. in. You have to go back and see well okay what, what were my ancestors like and it's so special when you find something you connect with as you said there that description because we know in our lives that it's not like tv where you have the same actor playing their ancestor way back when because it just genes don't work that way there's some that are very strong i have because my wife Catherine is a genealogist she found a picture of my great-grandfather and looks exactly like one of my brothers but doesn't look exactly like me, doesn't look like our other brother, doesn't look like his other his other great grandchildren of whom he has many, but it just so happens that's the roulette wheel. To do it every time is 
really lazy, honestly, and or or maybe just inattention to detail. I guess lazy is the right word for it because it doesn't work that way. But it pegs these people as okay. This guy's from the same family. That's that character, and you don't you aren't going to have this here. I know I haven't read book two yet, but I I can already tell because you're somebody who does care about that attention to detail and wants people to meet each character anew, even if you do have to do the hard work of of writing new character traits and giving each one a new mustache or no mustache. Yeah, I, I thought one without a mustache would have would have felt right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 and, you know, I, I did a trilogy of historical mysteries with the same protagonists uh, in three different books. And there it's, they're the same guys, so they can change a little bit, but they're still the same guys. And uh, I know this will sound uh, uh, maybe off-putting to people, but, you know, at a certain point, you know, I was done with them. I, I, I actually didn't want to write about them anymore. Um, and this was fresher for me because I had to imagine new people in new settings um, and, and, and enjoyed that very much. Well, Arthur Conan Doyle got tired of Sherlock Holmes and threw him off a cliff. So you're in good company there. And this is the thing, trying new things. That's part of what I just mentioned or observed about your writing is you don't want to just write the same character in a different era with, a, with the same mustache. And it, it would have been a great moment and you can you can use this if you ever have need of it but my one grandmother my mother's mother she wanted my brother who i just mentioned nick to change that mustache and twirl it up at the edges because this is back in the 80s and she was already 90 by then and that's how that's how her son one of her sons that that died in the war had worn it and so she thought that would look excellent because he'd he'd gone off to the great war with the kaiser mustache and many people had that that was the style before the kaiser stole and he said you know it's it's 1986 and i'm 21 or whatever my brother was i can't wear i can't wear a kaiser mustache around i'm gonna what happens if the austro-hungarians are out there and they're still mad at me but it it just it's one of those things where that would be a great moment to explain why because things like mustaches go out of fashion and so it's a it's a missed opportunity and you don't miss any of those opportunities here in the new land and anything that you write you're really really on top of it and I, I don't feel like i'm watching say an orchestra when i was in band in high school I, I remember our director and he went like this for the big cymbal class and nothing happened and i can see his face and he just went the, the, the kid had just missed it you know and so i i never am I'm reading this and saying wow he missed an opportunity there there's there's so much in it that you give us well, thank you. Thank you. It, it's, it's been fun. You mentioned the Fraser and Cook mystery series. We talked about the Lincoln deception and you had a quote that novelists can make up a lot, but Lincoln has to be tall. And so as we break down this novel, The New Land, and try to hook people in and explain that this book is, if you like that period, really a fun read, but also an accurate read, despite being fiction, you are still on the side of the facts here. And I wondered, as you were making all those tiny little choices about the symbol crash, <laughs> were, were there moments that the nonfiction side of your brain said, hey, wait a minute, fiction side, you're, you're making Lincoln a little bit too short. Honest Abe has to be tall. He can't be tiny. Are there moments like that where here you you've written so much nonfiction. You're writing fiction, and you have to draw yourself back. Well, you're always worrying that you've got uh, you're saying something that's just wrong. And uh, you know, when they first arrive in the, on the coast of Maine, they have to build huts. Uh, how did they do that? And what was the construction technique? And God bless the internet. Uh, it's monstrous in some respects, but if you want to find out obscure stuff, you can. There are people out there who, who are doing it. Uh, I had, you know, I have a sequence involving trapping. Well, I can assure you in my childhood um, in New York State, I, I didn't trap a lot. <laughs> I have no idea how you trap. So I spent a lot of days um, reading first-person accounts of how you set you know, very primitive traps and how, how they work. Um, and that is, you know, part of what readers want. That's how you get the texture of the life back then. You know, what did they eat? 
you know, what, what did it taste like? Um, that's what you can do. I, I can't do that with George Washington when I'm doing a nonfiction book so much because, you know, I really don't have the menu and, you know, I, I can't make it up. Well, here I can make it up and I want to make it up as close to the facts that I can figure out. Um, but that's, that, that's a lot of the fun. There is at least one real life historical figure, uh, General James Wolfe, who was the great hero in the uh, French and Indian War for the British. I, I did have to put a fair amount of work into understanding him and getting him. He, he's a rather eccentric character, which is, was fun. I, was, I, I like doing that. Um, and he's not one I think many readers will know very well. Uh, but that, that was, he's pretty much the only real life character that I had to, had to worry about. I interviewed Dr. Lindsay M. Shervinsky about her book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. And I told her I was going to be interviewing you. And I asked her as an admirer of your work and a mutual friend if she'd like to pitch a question to you. And she did so. She said she was very curious about how your writing process differs for fiction and nonfiction. And that comes right off what we were talking about, because it's not just what you do when you sit down with the pen to paper, but I imagine for me, when I'm writing something and I, I come across something in those encyclopedias that you were saying, it's very easy to start reading it for fun. I'm just looking for this one thing that I need in my research, but hey, this is not, I'm not writing a nonfiction book. I just need this one little part, but boy, this is a cool story. I never heard about this fellow and this character is compelling. So how do you have that discipline? Because you're clearly a very disciplined writer. That's why you're able to be so prolific. To Lindsay's question, how do you differ? How do you change your process when you sit down to write a book of nonfiction and fiction? Well, I have a, a friend of mine who, who writes both fiction and nonfiction. It sort of boils it down. The, the process is identical in the sense that you're always asking yourself, what happens next? <laughs> and in, in nonfiction, you got to go out and research it and get that, uh, get the command the facts. But with uh, fiction, you still have to figure out what happens next. There are good differences in that it, with fiction, I, of course, I, can con I have more control of the pace. The, the more I write, the more I read, the more persuaded I am that pace is the single most important thing in a book, um, that enough is happening, enough is drawing the reader in that the reader wants to keep going. Um, you're not getting lost in description. You're not... Uh, having bang, 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 one thing after another, and you can't keep track of it. Uh, so in a, in a novel, if it's, I think, okay, it's a little slow now, we've been interior, it's time for something to happen, or the other way around. Um, uh, you know, too much has happened, let's step back, let's, let's pull the camera back, and let's, let's think about what's going on. And I have more control over that. And that um, is, is a great uh, advantage and I, I enjoy that. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the biggest difference between the two in a very low practical level is I don't have to do references for uh, the fiction. And, and I was quite blessed that I could draw a lot of richness for this story from the story of this community. It was a a group of German settlers who landed in this town, which is still there, Waldeboro. Um, and some fellow 70 years ago wrote a two volume history of the community. And it's, it's not a big place. It's amazing. He did it. Um, and he did a good job. It's a good book um, or two good books. And that gave me all these other stories of, of other people in the community that I could draw on. They had religious conflicts. They had lots of trouble with the guy who brought them over there. He's sort of the, the villain of the piece, the uh, landowner who, you know, is lying and cheating and stealing every, but only when he's awake. Um, and he's a <laughs> dangerous guy. Uh, so that is uh, proved to be a, a tremendous advantage. I wanted to mention the quote that you have by William Faulkner in the very beginning of The New Land. And so therefore, kicking off this entire trilogy of the Overstreet Saga, 
It's a dream is not a very safe thing to be near. It's like a loaded pistol with a hair trigger. If it stays alive long enough, somebody is going to be hurt. But if it's a good dream, it's worth it. So I definitely wanted to ask you how that gets the pole position in the Overstreet saga and what it says to you, what you wanted to say to us as readers about the adventure that they're going to go on with you. Yeah, you know, Faulkner's unbelievable. You know, I, I did, I've gotten to the point where I don't like to read his books because it makes me feel like I should just stop writing. Um, <laughs> he was so good at it. Um, but, you know, the American story and still is, has always been and still is uh, an immigrant story. Uh, and that's, you know, I knew my two grandparents on my father's side were immigrants. Uh, my father-in-law was an immigrant. Uh, it's not far away from any of us, and or at least for most of us. And we're still getting immigrants every day. You know, we, we're arguing about it, which is terrible, but that is always fueled by a dream, that dream of a better life. And that's the promise of America. That's the promise that is kept and broken every day. And nobody comes here and has it easy, or at least if they do, their stories are dull. Things are hard. Um, it's hard to make a go of it. You, you don't have the language or you look different or, you know, you don't have any money and you can't get started and people don't like you and you don't know anyone and you're alone and that's hard. So that's what I wanted to explore here is this first book is really the immigrant tale um, and that's the universal one but uh, uh, the characters are never far from it in, in the next two either uh, and and you can't be because this is America uh, and that 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 is our story the pursuit of happiness it's a line that Tony Soprano says when he's complaining, as he always did there to Dr. Melfi's therapist, and he said, we're the only nation where the happiness is guaranteed in the Constitution. Why don't I have my happiness? And she says, I believe it's the pursuit that's guaranteed. And he says, always <laughs> exactly. a loophole. But it's <laughs> yeah. it's not a light thing to be to be guaranteed. Hey, you can you can do your thing. Don't trample on anyone else's happiness and you you should pursue it. Who else? thinks that way that was that was a nice flourish although jefferson of course they cut up all his writing he wanted it to be pursuit of property that that's so impersonal happiness can can mean anything and that's what we get here in the new land they're pursuing their happiness i think most people don't ever get everything they wanted i mean who does so that is the pursuit that's the dream and if it's a good enough dream it's worth it i, I wanted to mention uh couple of fictional pieces from the mid 1700s this period here that we visit in the new land it's the tv serial dark shadows which i watched a ton with my mother when i was young and also bbc one's poldark and i watched all of poldark too because i threw my back out and i had nothing else to watch and i enjoyed that and i haven't been able to find any of my guy friends that will talk about poldark but still uh, many women have watched it that i know they they seem to really enjoy that kind of thing that period Either you like that period or you just gloss over to thinking it's all just lace and fluff and people going to dances and not knowing where to put their fork. So I wanted to ask you if there's a movie, a TV show, or even another novel, a nonfiction book where you tell people when they ask you, well, what's this book about that you're writing here? Well, I don't know anything about that period. And you say, did you ever see X? And if you like that, you'll love the new land. Are there any fictional portrayals like that that people enjoy? And you say, yeah, if you enjoyed that, hey, pick up the new land. You know, it's my answer is aspirational. Um, I hope people would find um, some parallels, uh, some consanguinity between my uh, books and these novels and and the work of Bernard Cornwell, a historical novelist of extraordinary talent. I came to him through the Sharp novels, which are in the Napoleonic era. Sharp is a soldier in Wellington's different armies, but he's now got this amazing series back in ninth century England. And his characters are vivid. His stories are, are just grab you and 
they're full of adventure. They're full of uh, uh, conflict and, and, and war, but they're also very human and, and uh, not just shoot 'em ups, something, a phrase my father used to use for, to describe Western movies. And uh, that uh, he, he's for me, the model of uh, how to write compelling historical fiction today. Well, David, you talked about the pursuit of happiness, and then you just said aspirational. I, I think you really achieved it here. You definitely wrote a really enjoyable novel. I hope people will pick up a copy of The New Land. I'm so glad always when I get a chance to speak with you. I hope everybody enjoys your book. I'm sure they will as much as I do. Whatever your period is, even if you're not someone who's ever read a book before about the mid-1700s, you don't think you'll be able to get it. You will. And they, you're, I'm putting you here in the hands of a really skilled author, and he knows how to take you along on this story show you some of the sites, give you the taste of the food, all of these things that we read fiction to do so we can visit that forgotten, undiscovered land that books take us to. Get transported with him. Come back again, definitely, David O. Stewart, and discuss book two with us. I'm looking forward to hearing more and jumping ahead in your family story, too, to the Civil War. It's a date. I'd be delighted to. Thanks so much, Dean. You do a great job. Thank you, sir. So do you. Again, the book is the New Land, book one of the Overstreet Saga. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. And it's always nice for authors to get that boost. They do watch their numbers, especially the smaller authors that I have on who are building big followings. They just love to come on the show and then say, hey, look, I, I took a big jump on Amazon. So thank you so much for using our link to do that, getting your hands on these books that I really believe you'll enjoy. My thanks to David O. Stewart for this, his fifth appearance on the show. I'm already excited for the next appearance and the next book here in the Overstreet Saga. Please do check out those previous conversations in our archives, and you can visit our guest at davidostewart.com plus his social media accounts, my social media accounts. And if you enjoyed watching this conversation, please do subscribe at our YouTube and Rumble channels for future journeys in the Wayback Machine. And that way you'll be sure to get our next interview, including that upcoming one this year with David O. Stewart about book two of the Overstreet Saga. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this trip into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of David O. Stewart, thanks so much for time traveling with us today and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.